Amen. I hope as you uh, came in today, you uh, picked up a uh, copy of the uh, sermon notes. We come to uh, lesson 11 in our current uh, sermon series on excelling in our love for one another. Uh, We're simply walking through the uh, New Testament epistles and looking at all of the one another verses that teach us how to relate to one another within the family of God. And uh, we're looking at each of these verses within their larger uh, context. And uh, today's lesson, Lesson 11, comes to the one another passage that's found in 1 Thessalonians 4. And the larger context is the rapture of the church. And the uh, purpose uh, of this passage is to bring comfort uh, to those that are struggling with grief, that have lost loved ones uh, in the Lord. And so, in light of the fact that we'll be looking at the rapture, I thought it would be good, just as a foundation, to provide you a survey of future events this morning. And then uh, next Sunday, we'll get into the heart uh, of the lesson. And I thought that would be a, a good fit with it being Memorial Weekend, as we recognize our fallen soldiers, as we will be dealing with the grief and how to know God's grace and comfort in the midst of that grief. So, if you have your sermon notes, if you'll turn to the back side, and again this morning we're going to walk through this uh, uh, survey of future events, uh, and this just provides a very, very brief overview, not going to have time to go into any great detail. Uh, I will not be able to share every one of the verses that are listed here. Many I will read, uh, but you have them there in your notes, and you can do further Uh, reading and study there. So let's begin uh, with the present age that we're in, and that is the church age. In uh, Matthew 16, verse 18, Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, will not overpower it. Before his death and resurrection, Jesus promised to build the church, which up to that point did not exist. A matter of fact, the church is called a mystery in the New Testament because it was not revealed in the Old Testament. God had been working through the nation of Israel, but due to their rejection of Christ, God raised up the church to be His standard bearer to display His grace and glory to the world. Uh, The church was birthed on the day of Pentecost uh, in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came to dwell in the hearts of all who call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. And that is without distinction between Jew and Gentile. And Jesus promised not even the forces of hell would overpower God's plan for the church. What is God's plan for the church? Well, first... The church is a worshiping bride. We are to be a worshiping bride. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 9, the church is called the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And as the bride of Christ, we are to what? To worship Him. We are to adore Him by giving Him our affection and allegiance. And the magnificent, eternal destiny of the church is to reign with Christ as His queen to be his helpmeet, to be his helpmate in administrating his kingdom and accomplishing 
His work throughout all eternity. Uh, The church was also created, that second thing there in your sermon notes, to be a loving family, to be a loving family. Uh, The Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, and he said, I'm writing so that you'll know how to live in the family of God, and that family is the church. Now, think of the tremendous diversity that exists in the church around the world. We do not look alike. We do not talk alike. We have different tastes and customs, but in Christ, we are one family. And we are one family that will be together, what? Forever, forever. Therefore, we are to demonstrate a love for one another that is greater than our differences. And it's through that demonstration of love, and this has been the heart of this series current sermon series on these one another passages, it's through that demonstration of love that we demonstrate the authenticity of our Christianity, providing credibility for the advance of the gospel. The church was also created by God to be a healthy body, a worshiping bride, a loving family, and a healthy body. Romans 12, 15 reads, we who are many are one body. And as a body of Christ, simply put, we are to walk as He walked. We exist to be like Christ in all things, to extend His presence, to express His character. Christ may be on His throne in heaven, but through His church, He still walks on earth. He still ministers and touches and transforms lives. God also created the church, that last thing, to be a bold witness, to be a bold witness. Christ's commission to the church could not be any clearer. You shall be my witnesses, Jesus said, just prior to his ascension to the uttermost parts of the world. And then, of course, you know that great commission, therefore what? Go, go, go into the world and make disciples. And, you know, if you look at those four things, what do we often talk about in terms of the four focuses of any local church? What worship, fellowship, edification, and evangelism. And you have it right there. The worshiping bride, there's the worship component. A loving family, our fellowship with one another. A healthy body, edification through the Word of God as we feed on God's Word, as we step out in faith and obey God's Word. And then a bold witness, of course, is the evangelism uh, component. You do not measure the success of any church by counting nickels or noses. There's only one pertinent question for any local church to answer, as well as the church universal. Are we being faithful to what God called us to be? Are we being faithful as a worshiping bride, Jesus, our first love, greatest passion and pursuit. Are we being a loving family, knowing a love greater than our differences, a love that unites us in the midst of our diversity? Are we a healthy body walking as Jesus walked in this world? And are we being that bold witness to advance the gospel of Jesus that others might come to know him? Now, before we move on, Let me just say, it's important to realize with the present emphasis on the church, God has not abandoned the nation of Israel. 
Old and New Testament prophecy is abundantly clear that God, and we'll see this in this uh, survey of future events, God will restore Israel spiritually. And He will elevate the nation of Israel once again to a place of prominence among the nations. And this brings us to what uh, will be the next future event. What will be the next thing on uh, the prophetic uh, calendar? And that's event two in your notes, the rapture of the church. And the rapture is simply Jesus coming for his bride so that we will be at his side to fulfill our destiny to reign with him forever, to be his helpmeet forever. The rapture of the church will conclude the church era, and it marks the beginning of God's restoration of the nation of Israel. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. And of course, next week we'll be looking at this passage much more carefully, and especially in the context of how it brings comfort to us in times of grief. It says, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Notice two fundamental truths. Dead believers are raised first. We'll see next week. This was the uh, church at Thessalonians, their, their concern. Uh, they, they were struggling with grief. Well, what's going to happen with our, uh, the dead in Christ? Yeah, well, dead believers are raised. They're not going to miss out on anything, no blessing. And then living believers, that's that second blank, living believers then caught up together with them. So dead believers are raised first, and then living believers then caught up together with them. Now, what happens to the church immediately after the rapture? We'll look at the third point in your notes. The church is taken to heaven to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, Paul wrote, Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. Why? What is the motivation to live a pleasing life for Christ? Because we must all, and he's referring to Christians there, appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, two important truths about the judgment seat of Christ. Number one, get this down in your notes, design for believers only. This has nothing to do with unbelievers. This is the church that has been raptured, standing before Christ, each individual member of the church giving an account of their lives in terms of their service to Christ. So designed for believers only. And then second, it deals with rewards, not salvation. Our salvation is secure in Christ. The judgment seat of Christ has everything to do about rewards, either the gain or loss of rewards. In other words, this is when Christians receive their eternal dividends on the investments they made to advance Christ's kingdom on earth. And remember, 
God determines your eternal reward not on the amount of time, talent, and treasure you invested, but by the depth of your sacrifice, which puts us all on equal footing. And just as important as to what you do is what? Why you do it. The motive of the heart. Did you do what you did for Christ as a worshiping bride to show your love for Jesus and for Him to be exalted and put on a pedestal, to exalt His worth, His value? Uh, The judgment seat of Christ is summed up very well in a little poem, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last, for to me to live is what? Christ. The fourth event, the fourth event in our survey of future events is the seven-year tribulation. The seven-year tribulation. Now, the most complete description of this period of time is given in the book of Revelation, uh, beginning in chapter 4 and going all the way through chapter uh, 19. Uh, But for now, just a few key observations that you see in your notes. And the first two deal with the two primary uh, satanically inspired uh, characters uh, in, during the tribulation period. And the first is the beast. And that's what the Bible calls him, the beast. We use the term antichrist. You actually don't find that term in the scripture. He's called the beast or the man of sin or the son of perdition. But the beast, antichrist, is an individual who gains control, as you see there in your sermon notes, of a European confederation of nations, sort of a revival of the old Roman Empire. And he signs a treaty securing peace in the Middle East, which begins the seven-year tribulation period. This is very, very clear from the book of Daniel, as well as New Testament passages. It's a signing of this peace treaty that ushers in this seven-year period of time. And then in the middle of the tribulation, after three and a half years, we're told, he will uh, declare himself to be God. And he will break the peace treaty in an attempt to exterminate the nation of Israel and all followers of Christ. The second uh, prominent character is what is called the false prophet. False prophet is sort of the right-hand man of the beast or the Antichrist. And by the use of signs and wonders, we're told, he creates a one-world government with a unified religion, with all giving allegiance and worship to the beast. And then the third observation, and maybe the most important one, is this is a time when God's wrath, God's wrath is poured out on the earth, for man's sin and rebellion, in seven seal and in seven trumpet and vile judgments. And these are absolutely horrific. Just to give you an example, if you just take the fourth seal judgment and the sixth trumpet judgment, just in those two judgments, half of the world's population is extinguished. They die. Think about it. What's the world population now? What? About, uh, probably, uh, we're approaching 8 billion. I think it's 7 billion, 600 million something. Half. Wiped out just in those two uh, judgments. Uh, 
uh, a third of the oceans uh, become uh, blood and inhabitable, uninhabitable by life. Uh, a third of the rivers and uh, streams and, and lakes uh, become uh, poisonous. And we could just go on and on. Wonders in the sky. There's uh, wars. Uh, it's, just, it's just horrific uh, what takes place during this seven-year uh, tribulation period. Jesus described the tribulation this way. In Matthew 24, verses 21 and 22. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will be. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, uh, those days will be cut short. And let me just say, although the tribulation time is a time of horrific uh, judgment, uh, you see also God's redeeming power through the tribulation. Uh, there are 144,000 Jews that are converted, that are raised up as witnesses for God. There's also two individuals that are called the two witnesses. And if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, uh, they have a tremendous evangelistic ministry. They're actually put to death by the beast, and he hangs them out in the public uh, to make a mockery of them. And on the third day, what happens? God raises them from the dead. So during the tribulation, there are a number of people that will come to know Christ, uh, that will embrace Him. It talks about uh, a host of individuals that are martyred for Christ during this time, uh, that lose their lives because of their faithfulness to Him and their unwillingness uh, to follow uh, the beast. And we now come to the fifth event which marks the end of the seven-year tribulation period, and that is the second coming of Christ. The second coming of Christ. Uh, Jesus, speaking of His second coming, in Matthew 24, verses 29 and 30 said, But immediately, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. And then... The sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Uh, the book of Revelation uh, describes this event this way. Revelation 19, I'll begin reading at verse 11. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse... And he who sat on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, and that includes you and I, the raptured church, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, 
a symbol for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet, who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. The second coming of Christ And we can summarize it this way in the statement in your notes. Christ returns to earth to defeat Antichrist and the armies of the world at the battle of Armageddon. And take his, oh yeah, you do have it on the screen, don't you? No, you don't. Uh, And take his rightful place. I'm proud of you. Uh, And take his rightful place on earth's throne as king of kings and Lord of Lords. And then immediately after Christ's return to earth, we come to the sixth future event, and that is what's known as the sheep-goat judgment. And it's described by Christ in Matthew 25, verses 31 and 34. And the next statement in your notes summarizes uh, this event. And again, you can read in detail about it in Matthew 25. But this is where Christ judges all who survived the tribulation. Unbelievers and they're called the goats, are sent into eternal punishment. And believers who are called sheep are granted entrance into Christ's earthly kingdom. So that's the sheep-goat judgment. It's a judgment on all individuals who survived the tribulation. As I mentioned before, there will be many individuals that are converted during that time, but there will be a host that, of course, remain obstinate in their rebellion and their resistance against Christ. And so the unbelievers are sent to eternal punishment that survived the tribulation, and the believers that survived that, they go on uh, to live in uh, what we're going to see next, seventh event, the kingdom age, the kingdom age. And let me make three, well, let me read, uh, I will read, let me just read uh, Revelation 20 for you. Uh, to give you a little idea, let me begin at actually verse 1. It says, and I saw an angel. Uh, this is immediately, uh, uh, like I said, uh, comes after the uh, second coming and the sheep goat judgment. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon. Who's the dragon? It's the devil. The serpent of old, old who is the devil in Satan. And he bound him for a thousand years, and he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And we're part of that Uh, those that own those thrones and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or the image and had not received the mark uh, on their forehead and on their hand and they came to life 
and reign with Christ for a thousand years. Uh, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years was completed, talking about unbelieving uh, dead. Uh, Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, and they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. So three observations about the kingdom age. Number one, this period lasts 1,000 years with Christ ruling the earth. He is literally living in the city of Jerusalem, sitting on the throne there, and our role will be to help administrate uh, His earthly kingdom uh, during those uh, thousand uh, years. Uh, The second observation, as you uh, uh, heard me read, during this time, Satan is bound. He's put in this prison. He's he's put in a hold, and, uh, and he's put off the earth. And then the third observation, which uh, you see very, very clearly in both Old Testament and New Testament scriptures related to this, the curse is removed from the earth and animal kingdom. And the environment is perfect again. The curse is removed from the earth and animal kingdom, and the environment is perfect again. And then, sadly, we come to the eighth event, which is Satan's release. Satan's release. Uh, And uh, Satan is released, as you see there in your notes, to test those born during the kingdom age. Remember, those uh, believers that came through the tribulation, they go into the thousand-year kingdom. Uh, These are uh, individuals that have not suffered death at this point. Uh, They uh, marry. They have children. And uh, so uh, there's... uh, uh, a tremendous uh, population boom during this period of time. So he, Satan tests those who are born during the kingdom age. And sadly, we discover in the scriptures with many following him in one last failed attempt to overthrow Christ. Uh, this is what we read in Revelation 20 verses 7 through 9. And when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. And he will come out to deceive that, uh, the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, referring to Jerusalem, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Fire came down and devoured them. And then this brings us to the ninth event, and that is the great white throne judgment. The great white throne judgment, which you can uh, read about in Revelation 20, uh, verses uh, 10 through 15. And two key things will happen uh, at the great white throne judgment, and both are in your notes. And the first one is the universe is destroyed by fire. Heavens and earth are destroyed by fire. In Revelation 20, verse 11, we were told, then I saw a great white throne And him who sat upon it, Jesus, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. 2 Peter 3 gives us an even more vivid description when he says, The heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. So the uh, first thing that would happen related to the great white throne judgment is the uh, present earth, heavens, will be destroyed by fire. And the second thing you see there in your notes, Satan and all unbelievers are thrown into the lake of fire. 
Uh, look at uh, Revelation 20, verse 10 reads, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Verse 15 reads, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So the great white throne judgment, present earth heavens are, are destroyed, of course, which is going to lead us to a new heaven and earth. Uh, Satan is cast finally into the lake of fire to be tormented forever. And all unbelievers from all ages will be raised to stand before Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ. And they also, uh, along with Satan, will be thrown into the lake of fire to know eternal separation from God, eternal punishment. Uh, and then, of course, the tenth and final event in the survey of future events is eternity. Praise Him. <laughs> eternity. And that's described in Revelation chapters 21 and 22. And uh, the key thing there is, you see there in your notes that little bullet point, a new heaven and a new earth replaces the old. There is no more sorrow or pain, no death, and no night in eternity future, which is the destiny of all believers. Uh, Revelation 21.1 reads, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. Verse 4, He, Jesus, shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death, there shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, the first things have passed away. And then look in closing at that last statement in your notes, which is most important. Remember, please, please, please remember, the purpose of prophecy is not to create speculation about the future, but motivation to live for Christ today. And you know, you really see this in the book of Revelation. Most people don't understand the primary purpose of the book of Revelation. Now listen to me very carefully. This is, this is very powerful. Re the book of Revelation was written around 95, 96 A.D. At that point, there was wide persecution of Christianity. Think about this. Every single disciple, along with the apostle Paul, had been martyred. They were dead. There was only one still alive, John, and he had been exiled by the Roman Empire on the Isle of Patmos uh, as a uh, criminal to the state. Uh, we read in Revelation 2 and 3 what the state of the church was during this time. They had lost their first love. They were compromising with sin. They had been infiltrated by false teachers. And, my, and, and they were had, most of the church had been forced to go underground because of the persecution. The question everyone was asking, will the church survive? Will the church survive? What was God's answer? The book of Revelation. He gives them the end of the story. Saying, the church will survive. And they'll survive because I will be faithful to do what I said I would do. Because Jesus said what? I will what? Build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Yes, the church may get knocked down. But we're never going to get knocked out. And we'll be kept by the power of God to accomplish His plan for the church. To be that worshiping bride. Uh, to be that uh, loving family, healthy body, and bold 
bold uh, witness. And let me conclude with just simply reading for you 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. This is what prophecy should do in our hearts and lives. In other words, when we look at this survey of future events, again, we don't want it to just create speculation, a lot of curiosity. No, we want it to provide motivation. If you don't know him, motivation to come to know Jesus. Knowing that what awaits you is eternal punishment in hell, where you'll be tormented forever and ever. And today, Jesus is offering to you salvation through a relationship with Christ. If you're a believer... Motivation to give your life in total surrender to follow Him, to be used by Him, to build up those eternal dividends and rewards. And here's what it reads. Since everything around us, anything that you can see, anything that you can touch, anything that you can feel, he says, since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives you should live, looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along. On that day, He will set the heavens on fire, and the elements will melt away in the flames. But we are looking forward to the new heavens and new earth He has promised, a world filled with God's righteousness. And so, dear friends, while you are waiting for these things to happen, Make every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in His sight. And remember, our Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. And so as He's being patient in these days, holding back that time, we should be very aggressive in advancing the gospel providing uh, that offer of salvation to all who will believe. He says, you already know these things, dear friends, so be on the guard. Then you will not be carried away by the errors of these wicked people and lose your own secure footing. Rather, you must grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All glory to Him, both now and forever. Amen. 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 Father, thank you. Uh, for the opportunity, uh, did it in pretty quick speed, but thank you for the opportunity to walk through this survey of future events. And Lord, I pray it will uh, serve its God-given design. Uh, first, to motivate us as believers uh, to be that worshiping bride, loving family, healthy body, and bold witness. And that we would realize as believers... We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, looking right into the eyes of our divine Lord who laid down his life for us. And on that day, we will have to give an account of how we lived our lives for him to receive our eternal reward. And then, Lord, if there are any here that are lost, Lord, they have clearly heard today what is the destiny for all that reject the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is eternal torment in the lake of fire. So, Lord, I pray that you would grab their hearts and their lives. You would open their hearts and their uh, eyes to see the infinite beauty, majesty of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who died, was buried, and rose again to offer salvation to all who will call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. And so, Lord, give them that grace. Give them that motivation. 
Give them that empowerment to put their trust in you this day. Even as the young people sang about making their heart Christ home. As they would invite him in to forgive them and take control of their lives. For it's in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. As the invitation is extended today, it's simply, I surrender all. And I hope uh, this, this truth will motivate us as believers to surrender all, to follow him, uh, knowing what the future holds. And then if you do not know the Lord Jesus, I plead with you, place your faith in him. Amen. Put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved from the wrath that is to come and to follow him as your Lord and as your Savior. So please stand. I'll be standing here. Uh, for anyone who has a decision of any nature, profession of faith, desiring to unite with the church, but I trust every single person will reflect on what you've heard today, and in light of what you've heard, you'll be responsive to our Savior.